When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. The first poet I really fell in love with was T.S. Eliot, and I used to use my time at college, uh, not really studying, but driving around in an old Subaru with a really good tape deck in it, and I would drive around Mentor, Ohio, listening to recordings that Eliot had made of his poetry, and that experience was pretty profound. The During the freshman orientation for college. I didn't spend so much time listening to what I was being introduced to so much as making sure that my pocket-sized copy of The Wasteland was still in my coat and I would steal off to the bathroom to read it whenever I could. This early experience of reading Eliot and of figuring out what a poet could be led to the the first biography of a poet that I ever read, uh, the early biography of Eliot by uh, the wonderful British writer Peter Ackroyd. And soon after that, I found the first volume of Eliot's letters. And the combination of the poetry, the biography, and the letters sort of got me on a wrong track to deal uh, dealing with poets for quite a long time, a lot of distraction. Now that I look back on it, I can see that the intensity of having found, of Eliot being the first poet that I really came to become obsessed with and, and learned from, the combination of that experience of finding someone using language when you are that young, and the combination of seeing that he came from America and went to Britain Britain being a place that I always felt an immense sort of uh, nostalgia for, and I still do, as if I belong there. And then seeing in his letters, uh, seeing that all of it, the poetry, the letters, and the life, all sort of fit together and spoke to me, it made me think that this is what I could do with all poets, or I guess that's not entirely true. I wasn't doing that consciously. But I only came to see many years later that what I was basically trying to do was repeat that first experience with Eliot. And that, and that really, uh, a lot of what I've done has been a response to an intense experience and a desire to repeat it. 
whether it is finding uh, a religious text or a novelist or a piece of music, the assumption somehow is, is that I've had this intense experience and so if I look to someone else whose music I enjoy or someone else whose poetry or writing that I have suddenly discovered or a documentarian or someone like that, I should be able to repeat that experience when in fact this rarely happens. And I've always liked the remark from Elliot, I think from around 1917 or so, when he's not yet 30, when he says something like, there are only four or five poets writing right now that are worth publishing. And that can seem to be quite an arrogant statement, but it's also true, for me at least, and I, and I bet if you really pressed Elliot back in 1917, he would probably admit as much that everyone's list of four or five poets would probably be different. And in the same way, the list of poets that really move someone and really change their lives, the list of writers or artists or anyone you can think of that influences someone's life, that list is never, uh, can never be reduced to a canon or a prescription or a list of do's or don'ts or a list of any, <clears throat> excuse me, a list of any kind that everybody should follow. This is the reason that I have issues with everything from teaching poetry in teaching poetry or writing in school to uh, uh, various forms of religious fundamentalism and certainty. Uh, and this is a very long way of saying that I want to try something new tonight because in seeing how subjective all of this is that my love for Eliot is came about in a completely subjective way it was the result of a of who I was as a teenager and when I found him exactly when I was in high school and then what I did with that knowledge going into college and later dropping out of college. All of that is particular and autobiographical. And so I just like to carry that, uh, that bias forward. I think that all that we can basically do, and I see this every day with my daughter now, all that we can basically do is not share with people what we believe that they should do or ought to do or can do to make themselves happy. The best and probably the most influential thing that we can do is share those things that we are passionate about and that, that the feeling that we give from being passionate about whatever it is will either inspire and if we're lucky, it will either inspire others to become passionate about the same thing, or it will inspire them to become passionate in the same way, but about something else. So that there are only, it's almost a way of imagining our individual selves as planets, and that we are our sort of gravitational pull, if you want to think about it that way, pulls in certain moons and that there are really only four or five or a dozen maybe 
truly powerful and grounding influences. And at some point, I just sort of feel like clearing the table and only focusing on them. And in the past few weeks, the one to step forward most vividly has been Walt Whitman. And I'd like to try to do something here, which may not work, but it's worth a shot. I'd like to spend the rest of the year, or probably some of next year too, reading a handful of biographies of Whitman, and then reading excerpts from those books here of the parts that I enjoyed the most to try and get a sense and to try and give back what these writers have given to me about Whitman. And the sort of favorite book by other poets about Walt Whitman is the, the 1984 book by Paul Zweig Paul, called Walt Whitman, The Making of the Poet. And it's worth starting right at the beginning with him, and we'll see how long this can go. If I get to the, if I do everything that I want to tonight, it will take it to the end of the first part of the book, which is about a third of the way through. And uh, Zwieg's book covers Whitman throughout the 1850s, towards uh, just before and just after the publication of the first edition of Leaves of Grass in 1855. So just before going in, it's worth noting that Whitman's the, the dates in Whitman's life that you need to know here. Born in 1819, first edition of Leaves of Grass, published in 1855. And everything else sort of surrounds those dates. This is how Zwieg introduces and begins his book. In 1848, Walt Whitman was 29 years old and had not yet written a single text that we now remember. During the previous two years, he had been the editor of a newspaper, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, and before that, had run a series of Democratic electoral campaign sheets across the river in Manhattan. He had acquired something of a reputation as a polemical journalist with a sharp tongue, a radical Democrat, who could be uncomfortably shrill in his opinions of immigrant workers, especially the Irish. He had also published some extremely bad poems, some intriguing but negligible stories, and a potboiler temperance novel, which in his lifetime sold more than anything else he ever wrote. However carefully we examine the writing Whitman published during these years, we find no sign of immature but struggling genius, no aborted trace of any literary adventure, however misguided. We find instead a drab, excitable journalist, a man so undistinguished from the swarm of his colleagues that it is almost impossible to tell how many of the newspaper articles attributed to him he actually wrote. They are so completely expressions of the age itself at its lowest and most ordinary. Yet, seven years after his 29th birthday, this ordinary American man, with no visible talents, would publish the most unusual book of poems ever to be written in the United States. He would publish it as at his own expense, design its florid green cover, personally set type for it at a friend's printing shop in Brooklyn, 
and then persuade America's leading phrenologists to distribute it for him. Among the book's other unusual features was the omission of an author's name from the title page. Instead, on the facing page was an engraving of a bearded man wearing a large hat, an open shirt collar showing his flannel underwear, and workers' trousers. The man stood with his hand on his hip, looking from the page with an air of challenge, of invitation. To stimulate interest in his book, Whitman wrote a series of anonymous reviews and placed them in magazines. The reviews were peculiar, not only because of the dubious ethics of anonymously puffing one's own work, because as a journalist Whitman had been caustic about the dishonesty of paid journalistic puffs for plays and operas, but because the reviews made the most extravagant claims about the author. And here he quotes the one of the reviews that Whitman wrote about himself, and it's very hard to imagine that people didn't realize he wrote them himself because it sounds like Walt Whitman. It says, quote, large, proud, affectionate, eating, drinking, and breeding, his costume manly and free, his face sunburnt and bearded, his posture strong and erect, his voice bringing hope and prophecy to the generous races of young and old, talking like a man unaware that there was ever hitherto such a production as a book, or such a being as a writer. Every move of him has the free play of the muscle of one who never knew what it was to feel that he stood in the presence of a superior. Every word that falls from his mouth shows silent disdain and defiance of all the old theories and forms. If health were not his distinguishing attribute, this poet would be the very harlot of persons. Right and left he flings his arms, drawing men and women with undeniable love to his close embrace." Not only was this unnamed man a poet, Zwieg continues, he was apparently a new breed of American, unaffected by social constraints, exuberantly healthy, magnetic, inwardly balanced and spontaneous, so that poems seemed to shower from him as his native speech and not as artifacts of language on a page. And as the book continues, I should say, I'll just sort of interrupt it every now and then, what Zwieg and other biographers seem to say is that Whitman's pose means that he was affected by social constraints. He was not healthy, he was not magnetic, and he was not inwardly balanced, and especially when it came to his poetry, he was not spontaneous. And that makes his production of his, this new self even that much more remarkable. Zwi goes on to say, it has happened before that a mature writer with no accomplishment to speak of has produced a masterpiece seemingly out of nowhere. Defoe and Stendhal are examples. Yet Defoe had been a surprisingly good polemical journalist before he wrote Robinson Crusoe, while Stendhal had been a sensitive essayist and critic before he wrote The Red and the Black. Even in, even in their early failures, we detect a strong intelligence that finally, after long searching, discovered its medium. 
In Whitman, however, we can detect no preliminary rumble of talent, no nervous casting about for a medium. In a famous letter to Whitman in 1855, America's most famous man of letters, Ralph Waldo Emerson, wondered about the, quote, long foreground that must have preceded Leaves of Grass, which he called the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. But was there, truly speaking, a foreground? Surely the braiding of interests and personal traits, beliefs, commitments, talents that we identify as Whitman's history, seemed destined to produce an ordinary man, indeed, had gone far towards producing him. Here, then, is the first puzzle Whitman presents to his reader. Strictly speaking, it is the puzzle of all genius, but Whitman offers it in a starker form. More than that, he capitalized on the puzzle, made it part of his personal paradox. He always insisted that he was not a literary man, properly trained by college and foreign travel, supported by a library of diligently read books. When he spoke, unadorned human nature spoke. The mystery of his poems, he never tired of repeating, was the lowest common denominator of all the mysteries of human achievement, the mystery of ordinariness. This puzzle was signified by the picture facing the book's title page. Here was clearly no waistcoated man of letters. It was, it was signified, less directly by the name, drifting midway through the book's first and monumentally long poem, Walt Whitman, a casual sort of name, without the multisyllabled pomp of Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, or Walter Whitman, Jr. And finally and foremost, there was the book's title, Leaves of Grass grass, the most nondescript universal form of life, and not spears or blades of grass, but leaves, as in the leaves of a tree or, in a characteristically furtive pun, leaves of a book. The poems were to be seen as springing out of the ground, as though no one could truly claim to have written them. And the man who did write them, this Walt Whitman, mentioned on page 29 of his first edition, seems so healthy and good-natured that he apparently did it without noticing, as St. Paul told us charity must be done, with the left hand ignoring what the right hand has accomplished, so as to avoid the traps of ambition and spiritual pride. These are strong claims, more on a level with the mythical boasting of the American frontier the Picos Bills and Mike Finns, or with the titanic egoism of a James Gordon Bennett, founder of the much-despised but highly successful two-penny newspaper, the New York Herald, than with the usual claims of a poet and man of letters. Yet, by Whitman's day, the 19th century had given rise to a tradition of poetic extravagance. For Wordsworth, the poet was a, quote, priest of nature. For Shelley, he was one of the world's, quote, unacknowledged legislators. Carlyle called him a hero of humanity. And for Emerson, he was the only complete man among 
partial men. Whitman knew all of this. He had grown up on the bardic archaisms of Ossian and seen the awesome fame acquired by a poet, Byron, whose well-publicized life appeared as a foundation for the wild emotions of his poems. During Whitman's literary apprenticeship in the early 1850s, he annotated magazine articles on the Romantic poets and on literary theory. He read Carlyle, Emerson, and Epictetus. He read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, with its rhythmic prose poetry and its thundering parallelisms. He also read, and gathered hints from, the dwindled race of third-rate romantics who, now thankfully forgotten, made literary news in his day. Alexander Smith, Martin Farquhar Tupper, and Samuel Warren. These were grist for the mill that was churning in his mind, issuing into notebooks and scraps of paper which he carried about with him, or filed into envelopes to assemble later into poems. Whitman did all this while remaining the unremarkable journalist he had previously been, as if his mind managed, somehow, to live two separate lives, one breathtakingly daring, almost foolhardy in its originality, the other workmanlike and harried, a perfect echo of the banal public intelligence of his time. Let us not underestimate Whitman's enthusiasm for the national clichés of his day, his raucous patriotism, his brassy belief in progress and democracy, his broad sentimentalism about anything concerning home life and its presiding angel, mother, who, according to the sentimental fable of the contemporary lady's novel, incarnated Christ-like virtues and suffered a sort of crucifixion at the hands of an insensitive world. As a journeyman editor in the edifying mode of Horace Greeley, who was one of the first to understand the possibilities of mass journalism in the United States, Whitman wrote what he truly believed, and he wrote it in the inflated style of his journalistic colleagues, who knew, or thought they knew, just what Americans wanted to read over breakfast. Whitman usually kept journalistic clichés out of his poetry, but not always. There are flat, programmatic poems in almost every edition of Leaves of Grass, where Whitman seems to be trying to complete a formula to touch on all the issues, like an editor filling out his front page. Yet, in his 1855 preface, the, and here he quotes Whitman, saying, the direct trial of him who would be the greatest poet is today. The poet must flood himself with the immediate age as with vast oceanic tides, end quote. He might be describing not only the greatest poet, but also the journalist of the 1850s, with his newly expanded information-gathering services, such as the Telegraph, or the teams of reporters, assembling every day a miscellany of the immediate age for the appetite of an ever-growing public. The newspaper is so fleeting, Whitman mused to the young, to the young friend of his later years, Horace Traubel, is so like a thing gone as quick as come. It has no life, so to speak, its birth and death almost coterminous. 
Such is the price of hugging the immediate age by cataloging its events, moment by moment in a kaleidoscopic form that seems to be, and almost is, contemporary with the events themselves. And as an aside here, it's interesting to note that at the very beginning of the kind of media that we know now, someone like Whitman could see almost immediately how fleeting it is, that that sense of how fleeting it is was apparent from the start. Zwi goes on to say, a newspaper is a recitative on actions as they occur. It is the opposite of a formed response to events, certainly not anything that has been, as Wordsworth put it, recollected in tranquility. And, like the immediate age itself, it is gone as quick as come. All this is to say that a newspaper is not literature. But, leaves of grass too, Whitman needed us to believe, was not literature. It, too, claimed to be contemporaneous with the experiences it rendered miscellaneously, inclusively, like one of those new independent newspapers, the New York Times or Greeley's Tribune, founded in 1851 and 1841, respectively, devoted to current events, human interest, and a dosage of strong opinion. Much remains to be said about the influence of mass journalism on literature in the 19th century. Not only did newspapers help to create an unprecedented reading public, they influenced the shape of the literature itself. The novels of Balzac and Dickens, with their sprawling episodic structure, their play of coincidences, their interweaving of fiction and contemporary fact, were first written for serial publication in newspapers. They competed with the news for a reader's attention and were a version of the news in wholeheartedly embracing the immediate age, as Whitman also enjoined the great poets to do. We call such storytelling realism, and it owes much to the most programmatically realistic form of writing ever conceived, the mass circulation newspaper. In America, only Whitman among our great writers grasped the possibilities of the new journalistic culture and, all his life, used newspapers to publicize himself. Far from being offended, he might only have chuckled at Emerson's exasperated description of Leaves of Grass as a mixture of the, quote, Bhagavad Gita and the New York Tribune, end quote. Whitman himself was never more than an average journalist, yet as a poet, he transposed the idiom of the contemporary newspaper, its broad miscellaneous aesthetic, if I may so call it, into a new tone and a new form. His poet was not only bard, prophet, and priest, he was a sublime editorialist and wide-ranging commentator on the immediate age. Whitman first tried out his larger-than-life style as a newspaper editor during the 1840s. He was a bard of daily life. His words diffused every morning into thousands of households across the city. It was an exciting accomplishment for a young man, and he remembered it years later when he created a voice for his poetry.
a few pages later, Zwig goes on to say, in a famous aphorism, the poet William Butler Yeats wrote that a man must choose perfection of the life or of the work, thereby summing up a familiar belief in the compensatory power of art, its ability to rise above the sickness from which man suffers. In art, man sublimates his unfulfillable needs, creates horizons of wholeness. The Romantic poets, Keats accepted, might have resented Yeats's formula, but Whitman would not have understood it, for he believed the contrary was true. Perfection of life was perfection of the work. His poems were not literature because they annihilated the formal distance that literary works traditionally placed between themselves as shaped entities of language and the turbulent puzzles of experience. Wordsworth had announced the 19th century's revolution in style by arguing for a poetry based on spoken language and common subject matter. Yet even he wrote as a, quote, priest, his revered predecessor and constant stylistic reference was Milton. As a stylist, Whitman's genius lay in his ability to write as if literature had never existed. He did this cannily, with unerring artistic instinct. In his earlier notebooks we find remarks like these, and this is pretty incredible. This is what Whitman says in his notebooks. Make no quotations and no references to any other writers. Lumber the writing with nothing. Let it go as lightly as a bird flies in the air or a fish swims in the sea. Rules for composition. A perfectly transparent, plate-glassy style, artless with no ornaments or attempts at ornaments for their own sake. They only looking well when like the beauties of the person or character by nature and intuition, and never lugged in to show off. Take no illustrations whatever from any ancients or classics. Make no mention or allusion to them whatever except as they relate to the new present things. Clearness, simplicity, no twistified or foggy sentences at all. The most translucid clearness without variation. Common idioms and phrases Yankeeisms and vulgarisms, cant expressions, when very pat only. Whitman was so good at this plate-glassy, artless style that we tend to forget that he, like other poets, knew exactly what he was doing. When, in his poem, he tells us that we are not reading a poem, but touching a man, that the distance of paper and abstract signs is unbearable to him, and that he is glad to have passed through it into our arms, we are jarred and charmed. Maybe we don't believe him, but we willingly suspend our disbelief, reading passages like the following as something more than either wit or romantic piety. And this from one of Whitman's poems. Push close, my lovers, and take the best I possess. This is unfinished business with me. How is it with you? I was chilled with the cold type and cylinder and wet paper between us. I pass so poorly with paper and types. I must pass with the contact of bodies and souls. 
this is the special claim Whitman makes upon his readers, the claim of intimate presence, as if the poem were the outcry of a heart, were not a text but an embrace. If there is a model here, it is probably the theater, the one art Whitman had thoroughly known and loved during his pre-literary days. His poems are, in some sense, a script brought to life by the voice and physical presence of the player, who speaks beguilingly to an audience of rapt souls, each one intimately alone with the masterly presence filling his attention. Theater is, after all, the art of which it is undeniably true that perfection of the life is perfection of the work. The life in question is, to be sure, the ambiguous and mysterious one before you on the stage, the actor who may be magnified into genius by the power of the words that have been written for him. An illusion? Yes, but of a peculiarly convincing sort. The man is there, he speaks. Keeping in mind this figure of the theater, we understand Whitman's fascination, especially strong in the 1850s, with public speaking. His 1850s notebooks are filled with ideas for a new style of American oratory. In particular, he was fascinated by the dramatic effect of voice, gesture, and tone, the merging of the man with his text, which transfigures the speaker and makes him momentarily more than a man, and almost a god. And this leads quite well into a, a, a further discussion of the theater. I used the analogy of the theater earlier to describe the deliberate immediacy of Whitman's voice in Leaves of Grass. It is a rich analogy, serving also to characterize a whole aspect of Whitman's behavior as a public figure his stagey working man's costume in Samuel Hollier's engraving for the 1855 edition of Leaves of Grass, the florid beard he had cultivated by 1860 to go with his high boots and tucked-in pants legs. When Whitman spouted Richard III from the top of a Broadway stage, he was more ham than unselfconscious child of nature. In fact, if there is one thing Whitman surely never was, it is unselfconscious. Rarely has a writer demonstrated such exquisite care for his appearance and been so aware of the effect he had on others. Here, Whitman's counterpart is not the cocky Yankee peddler striding America's open road, but Baudelaire's esthete and dandy, Samuel Kramer, or more vividly, Oscar Wilde, who one likes to think, guessed at Whitman's deepest nature when he made a pilgrimage to Whitman in Camden in 1882. As an example of Whitman's half-humorous but persistent artfulness as an American-style dandy, mirroring himself gleefully in people's eyes, let this delightful passage from an 1860 letter stand for volumes of similar evidence. Whitman was writing to his friend, Abby Price, while visiting Boston to supervise the printing of his new book. Whitman says, quote, I create an immense sensation in Washington Street. Everybody here is so like everybody else, and I am Walt Whitman, 
Yankee curiosity and cuteness, for once it is thoroughly stumped, confounded, petrified, and made desperate." End quote. Whitman could be broadly playful and cute, yet there is more here than some New York strutting on a proper Boston street. I am Walt Whitman, and this, in a letter to a friend, Whitman's swagger, his peculiar self-grooming, belongs not only to the street, where it is impersonal, a kind of circus, but apparently to his private life, to his friendships. Where, we wonder, does the theater end and the undisguised player begin? How much, for example, the Boston letter and the anonymous self-portrait I quoted a few pages back resemble each other. We are here at the heart of the puzzle that Whitman willfully created for his readers. Do we respond to his poem as we might to a poem by a more conventional poet, Wordsworth, say, or Shelley, or as followers of an impassioned saint speaking radical new words? In the 1850s, Whitman played exuberantly upon all aspects of this puzzle. His genius, as we shall see, was to have shaped a poetic style to embody his claim thereby preserving it vigorously and intact for those future readers, those others he appeals to in his great poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, where Whitman says, A hundred years hence, or ever so many hundreds years hence. That is why, more than a century later, we continue to question him. We are those others, yet, for all Whitman's literary triumph, he is probably America's greatest poet, we still ask the unliterary question he forced upon his, his contemporaries. Not only, what is this book? A formidable enough question, but also, who is this man? And Zwi goes on to say, and to describe the 1850s, says that the 1850s were an extravagant period in American history. Even as forebodings of civil war were paralyzing the nation's political life, even as urban poverty and the extension of factory labor were making a mockery of Jeffersonian ideals, Americans talked piously, almost frantically, about the wholesale improvability of virtually everything. This tension-filled decade was also a heyday of utopianism, health reform, temperance, penal and educational reform. Spiritualists talked to the dead, thereby proving the scientific truth of religion. Never had human affairs seemed so easily changeable for the better. And this vision of unimpeded expansion stirred Whitman deeply. The reading notes he made in the 1850s give the impression that he had set about to master all of human knowledge. His notebooks are filled with bold suggestions for improving the rules of American grammar and spelling. He wanted to rename New York Manhattan, to change the methods of American government, to improve the armed forces. 
Were Whitman's ambitions of the 1850s incredibly naive? Maybe even a little mad? Perhaps. As a 36-year-old journalist, he should have known better, and in a sense he did know better, having labored for a dozen years at the nuts and bolts of the political process. But not knowing better was also very American. We will see the support Whitman found in the popular thinking of his day for his extravagant habits of mind. While writing his first important poems, Whitman experimented with being a new man. His poems were the voice of an unimaginably grandiose self, or else, more complicated, more risky, they expressed the arduous process by which Walt Whitman traveled his open road to perfection. Song of Myself is probably the finest enactment in all literature of the adventure of self-making, akin to such great quest poems as the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Divine Comedy. It is also what I would call a, quote, therapeutic epic, based on Whitman's fundamental belief in the malleability of human personality. During the experimental years of the 1850s, Whitman made extravagant demands upon himself, living intensely, erratically, veering from expansive highs to paralyzing lows. He also published the first edition of Leaves of Grass, containing several of the greatest poems in our language. Yet, in the half-dozen years between its publication and the Civil War, his reputation was, at best, that of a marginal poet. At forty-two, he still was unable to earn a living, and lived with his family in a disintegrating, increasingly strident household, held together by his mother, whom it whom it was becoming ever harder to idealize at close quarters as she squabbled with her sons and daughter-in-law. Yet, the Civil War brought a terrible renewal to Walt Whitman. On a December afternoon in 1862, he threw some clothing into a suitcase and left for Fredericksburg, Virginia, where his brother George had been reported wounded in battle. George's wound was only a scratch, but Whitman lingered near the battlefield, absorbing the panoramic confusions of the war, the comradeship of the young soldiers. Soon he would be plunged into the most trying and exciting experience of his life. By the beginning of 1863, he had gone to Washington and was visiting the war hospitals around the capital for hours every day. He sat with the young soldiers and watched them die of cholera, wrote letters to their families, brought little treats for them, a few sheets of letter paper, some cake or candy, a sip of brandy. Most important, he brought himself, ruddy and large, white-bearded, magnetic, magnetic with, quote, health, as he put it. Holding their hands and kissing them, he felt he was feeding them, his life energy. The boys called him old man and loved him with the helpless, grateful love of frightened adolescence. Whitman visited the hospitals for the next four or five years, even after the war. For him, the war took place in these vast, whitewashed sheds 
among lonely, dying young men. In the 1850s, he had imagined himself a healing spirit in touch with all of America. It had been a profound ideal, but also a desperate one, and the sloth he had fallen into during his last years in New York reflected his sad sense of the failure of his experiment. The life and the work were, after all, not the same. The poems might stand, but the man was only a man. And as another aside here, that seems to be the great challenge of creative work at all, how it is to live in the high of a creation of suddenly bursting out with something. And even as I did last night, sharing something brand new for a few hours with a loved one, and then basically going back to everyday life. And the guilt, I suppose, and even the desperation to somehow realize that the everyday life should also be sacramental, but it has to be sacramental in a different way than the creativity, and how to live to use the image I've always thought of, how to live with the idea of Homer taking out his garbage while also having these huge worlds in his head uh, is an extremely difficult one and one that I hope to devote an episode or two or a dozen to uh, in the future. Zwie goes on to say, Yet now, roving the hospitals around Washington, it seemed to Whitman that he had literally become the ubiquitous spirit of his poems. All around him in the dim wards lay the America he had always spoken to in his poems. The young mechanics and the farmers, those comrades whose adhesive natures formed the basis for the democracy he loved. Once he had imagined himself uniting the country with his magnetic presence, an unfulfillable wish, it would seem, a fantasy clinging to the magnificent poems he wrote. Yet now, in the hospitals, he had become that very man. It is no wonder that, in later years, Whitman retold his life with the Civil War at its center. During the war, the dream that, for almost a decade, had shaped his life and his poems appeared to have become a reality. And it is this reality and the way that Paul Zwieg writes about it that makes it one of the most beautiful passages in, in any of these books on Whitman that I will share. Yet, Zwieg says, how tragic that reality was. Like the brooding wanderer in his poem The Sleepers, Whitman walked among these bodies drained by cholera, amputated in makeshift surgeries, delirious with fever. He was too honest not to know how personally exalting these hospital visits were to him. And in a letter to a New York friend, he wrote, quote, There has not passed a day for months, or at least not more than two, that I have not been among the sick and wounded, either in hospitals or down in camp, Occasionally here I spend the evenings in hospital. The experience is a profound one, beyond all else, and touches me personally, egotistically, 
in unprecedented ways. I mean the way often the amputated, sick, sometimes dying soldiers cling and cleave to me as if it were a man overboard to a plank, and the perfect content they have if I will remain with them, sit on the side of the cot a while, some youngsters often, and caress them, etc. It is delicious to be the object of so much love and reliance, and to do them such good, soothe and pacify torments of wounds, etc. You will doubtless see that I have said the reason I continue so long in this kind of life, as I am entirely on my own hook too." End quote. Whitman's excitement as he wandered through the wards bordered on the erotic. He felt fulfilled and wildly alive. It did not matter that the young men had never heard of his poems, and he never spoke of them. His kisses and caresses seemed truer to him than poems could ever be. Yet, men died in these hospitals. They had been young and healthy, their lives before them, and now they were dying. The irony must have been overpowering. Whitman had gotten his wish, but in a charnel house. And that is a line that I have simply never forgotten from dozens of books. Whitman had gotten his wish, but in a charnel house. He lived and loved because others died. He was, in a sense, feeding on death. Never had love, death, and suffering been so urgently mingled for him. And here is a portion of a letter he wrote to his mother. Quote, Mother, one's heart grows sick of war, after all, when you see what it is. Every once in a while I feel so horrified and disgusted. It seems to me like a great slaughterhouse and the men mutually butchering each other. I see so much of butcher sights, so much sickness and suffering. I must get away a while, I believe, for self-preservation." The Civil War was the great event of Whitman's life. His small book, Drum Taps, 1865, contains a handful of the, a handful of the finest poems to come out of the war. Specimen Days, 1882, and Memoranda During the War, 1876, along with his letters to his mother and friends, are among the most vivid memoirs we have of those catastrophic years. Without his experience of the war, he later claimed, Leaves of Grass could not have been written. But here, Zwieg points, uh, points to an extremely... I don't know what you'd say. An extremely important point about Whitman's life, he says, but Whitman was being careless here, for all but a handful of his greatest poems predate the war. Yet he was telling his own truth. Although his book depended less on the war than he claimed, the war rewrote his life. In the war hospitals, Whitman became the man of his book, and Thoreau's experiment Thoreau's experiment had taken him to a lakeside near Concord. Whitman's took him to the hospitals, where he learned at the cost of mental exhaustion and finally physical collapse that a man's life and his work could, after all, be won. 
Whitman's dual experiment is my subject in this book. I begin in 1848 with Whitman's trip to New Orleans at the end and end with the Civil War years. These are the years of Whitman's greatest work. They are also the years when he worked arduously to make himself into the new American man. He was not yet the celebrated, often controversial figure of his later years. During the 1850s, he worked alone. He lived in his notebooks and in the streets, played his grandiose role for friends and family, and then for a trickle of famous visitors. During these years, the experiment was uncertain, and failure often seemed imminent. Although Whitman's life was uneventful during the decade before the war, in his emotions he lived recklessly and forged poem after poem in the white heat of his ambition. Yet, the poems are not simply effusions, too reckless to be art. Here is where Whitman reserves the deepest surprise for us. He was a self-critical artist, a stubborn craftsman, who knew the effect he strove for, and developed a language to obtain it. Perhaps he drew here on that same faculty of self-distancing which drove him, as if by compulsion, often to write about himself in the third person. In the midst of the, quote, fit, was a watcher, always cautious and prudent, who learned to construct the poems, even while the dancer danced. And I have gotten through maybe a third of what I hoped, but I'm guessing that this is more than enough for one episode. As usual, Whitman sort of spills over and always goes over the bounds that you set for him. So I will save the rest of his life for later and hope that this is an experiment worth continuing. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.